Section 11 of the Counter-Reformation by Adolphus Ward. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain, read by Pamela Nagami. Chapter 4, The Council of Trent, Part 4. Under these circumstances, there was little prospect of France being for some time to come represented at Trent, except by ambassadors with instructions very unacceptable to the papal policy. From the empire, too, neither Catholic nor Protestant princes could be prevailed upon to attend, and a commission appointed by Ferdinand carried its demands for ecclesiastical reforms so far, September 1561, that he had to moderate their tone before incorporating them in his Labellus de Reformatione, afterwards presented to the council. Even King Sebastian of Portugal, about this time formulated a series of very substantial articles of reformation for presentation at Trent. Philip II of Spain completely approved of this proceeding and supported the demand of the other powers for a free council. At the same time, however, both he and the Spanish bishops were resolved to maintain the rigid standard of doctrine proclaimed in the earlier sessions of the council and to allow no concessions to Protestant claims or sympathies. Thus, after all, the new assembly was not likely to be altogether unmanageable, and Pius IV took care to keep up the numbers of the Italian bishops, besides appointing not less than five legates to conduct the proceedings. These legates were mostly moderate men. Such was preeminently the character of Hercules Gonzaga, Cardinal of Mantua, the presiding legate, a persona gratissima to the emperor. With him, Cardinal Puteo, an accomplished canonist, had been originally named, but he was disabled by illness just before the meeting of the council. The others were Cardinal Seripando, formerly general of the Augustans and now Archbishop of Salerno, a learned and moderate-minded prelate, Simonetta, whom Sadolet extols as unanimously acknowledged to be the greatest lawyer of the age, and Cardinal Hassius, afterwards the principal figure in the Polish counter-reformation. He was probably selected as having for some time held the nunciature of the emperor's court and being well acquainted with his views. Simonetta seems to have been regarded as the representative proper of the papal policy for Puteo was afterwards substituted the Cardinal of Hohenems, Alton, Bishop of Constance, a young nephew of the Pope. Soon after the reopening of the council, Pius IV characteristically directed another relative, the able Bishop of Ventimiglia, Visconti, to watch the proceedings of the two senior legates, who with their colleagues seem in their turn to have employed the same agent to watch the conduct of the Cardinal of Lorraine. Was the council, which held its first public session on 18th January 1562, to be regarded as a new council, or as a continuation of that which had previously sat in the same locality? This was no merely theoretical question, for on the answer would depend two issues inseparable from one another. In the first place, would the new assembly resume the labors of the previous one, at the point they had reached, more especially 
in the enunciation of true Catholic doctrine. And again, would it refuse to reopen the door deliberately shut by its predecessor upon a policy which aimed at reconciling the Protestants to the Church? To ensure affirmative answers to both these questions was naturally the desire both of Rome and of the Spanish bishops, and those who were like them, intent upon the establishment of a vigorous church discipline rooted in a strong episcopacy, but above all upon the definitive declaration of a rigid body of Catholic doctrine. The opposite view was, however, long favored by the Emperor Ferdinand, supported by a public sentiment practically universal in the empire, and by France, where bigotry and faction had not yet quenched the national desire for ecclesiastical independence and political unity. Not very dissimilar were the issues turning on the further question as to the acceptance of the new principle of conducting the business of the council. This principle, which the legates sought to introduce by a procedure the reverse of straightforward, reserved to themselves the initiative of proposing subjects of discussion to the council. Vehemently resisted by some of the Spanish bishops, the formula was maintained even after Philip II had sought the assistance of the emperor and the kings of France and Portugal for bringing about its removal, and after Pius IV had himself agreed to concede the point. Thus the council was down to its close, very effectively prevented from enlarging the scope of its proceedings at the risk of interfering with their deliberately designed plan. For though amidst many vexatious delays, at the last preceded by all but reckless haste, the original plan of the council was actually carried out, and this was a degree of success of which it is futile to lose sight because of the intrigues and maneuvers and the struggle of interests and passions obscuring it in the pages of partisan historians. In this concluding period, the Italian bishops preponderated more than ever. Next to them, the Spaniards were again the most numerous. But though as a body still faithful to their program, both on questions of doctrine, where they agreed with the papal party, and on questions of discipline, where they differed from it, they no longer voted as a solid phalanx, and their leader, Archbishop Guerrero of Granada, demanded no unbroken allegiance. Moreover, the Jesuit Salmeron, who discharged the duties of papal theologian, and a little later the Jesuit general Lyonnais, who bore himself as the intellectual master of the assembly, represented an element in the religious life of Spain which claimed attention in spite of either bishops or king. No prelates attended either from the empire at large or from Poland, the proxies whom they sent being naturally enough refused a hearing by the majority. Hungary and Bohemia were represented by a few bishops. The French prelates, with the Cardinal of Lorraine at their head, did not arrive till late in the day, November 1562. Thus the opposition to the papal management of the council was, during the greater part of this year, conducted by a cooperation between the imperial and French ambassadors, occasionally productive of brave words, but ineffectual in its final results. The first deliberations of the reassembled council were barren, 
for the definitive adoption of the index of prohibited books was deferred to the close of the council, when it was, after all, handed over to the Pope. And though a safe conduct was granted to Protestants desirous of attending at Trent, no Protestant government or prelates availed themselves of it, while the heretical subjects of Catholic states were expressly excluded from its use. Hereupon, however, the council attempted again to proceed pari passu with dogma and discipline. On the latter head, in particular, the imperial and French ambassadors at different times presented very distinct demands in the so-called libels of reformation laid by them before the council. But in neither case were these programs seriously taken up. One disciplinary question of paramount importance might, however, have speedily been carried to a satisfactory issue. Could the manifest advantage of the Church have prevailed over the baser interests of the Roman court? This was the question of residence and of its divine origin as constituting an obligation upon bishops and priests charged with the cure of souls. On this head a complete agreement existed between the governments and the Episcopal party, and the Pope himself was known to have declared to the cardinals at Rome his conviction of the divine origin of the duty. Thus two of the legates, Gonzaga and Seripando, were prepared to give way to ultramontane opinion on the subject, though Simonetta unfalteringly upheld the Roman view. When, in April 1562, they actually put the question to the vote, nearly half the assembly affirmed the divine origin, while about a quarter voted in the negative, and another quarter, or slightly more, for referring the matter to the Pope. Hereupon the latter changed his attitude, and when the question which had seemed shelved was once more revived, threatened to dismiss the presiding legate for sacrificing the welfare of the Holy See. But though he for a time talked of removing the council once more to an Italian city, Pius IV had no real reason for fearing a dangerous show of independence at Trent, and Philip II himself gave orders that the question of residence should for the present be allowed to slumber. In the meantime, Another struggle had begun in connection with the formulation of the dogmatic decrees concerning the sacraments on the subject of the concession of the cup to the laity. This, the chief concession made to the German Protestants in the interim of 1548, was demanded both in the imperial and in the French libel, and it was known to be viewed without disfavor by the Pope himself, whose predecessor, Paul III, had formerly, at the request of Charles V, empowered a commission of bishops to accord it to individual claimants in the empire. The denial of the cup to the laity was a relatively modern practice in the Western Church, and its use was accordingly now, as it had been at Basel, a mere question of expediency. The Spanish episcopate, however, herein thoroughly in harmony with Philip II, would listen to no such proposals while in the eyes of the papal party, more papal than the Pope, and encouraged in its persistency by the ruthless oratory of Lyonnese, to yield on one head seemed the preface to yielding on all. When the vote was taken, September 1562, only 48 were found ready to allow the concession of the cup, some to the laity of the empire and its dependencies, 
some to that of Hungary and Bohemia only, while 52 with or without qualifications refused the proposal, and 65 relegated the matter to the decision of the Pope. Not many days afterwards, a previous effort in the same direction, having failed, this course was finally agreed upon by an overwhelming majority composed of members voting from very different points of view. The question which really came home to the fathers of the church assembled at Trent presented itself again when the sacrament of orders had in due course to be debated. The imperial and French ambassadors still cooperated as actively as ever, and the Episcopal party, the Spanish prelates in particular, entered upon the struggle with a full sense of its critical importance. If the right divine of episcopacy could be declared, with it would be established the divine obligation of residence. Pius IV accordingly showed considerable shrewdness in instructing the legates at once to formulate a decree on residence, which, while leaving the question of divine obligation open, imposed penalties on non-residents, except for lawful reasons, sufficient to meet practical requirements. But though such a decree was passed by the council, the debates on the origin of the episcopal office, which involved nothing less than the origin and nature of the papal supremacy, continued November, and the critical nature of the discussion was the more apparent when, in the midst of it, there at last arrived near a score of French bishops headed by the Cardinal of Lorraine. Hitherto France had been represented at the council by spokesmen of the French court and of the Parliament of Paris, now the foremost among the prelates of the monarchy, whose abilities, however, unfortunately fell far short of his pretensions, announced in full conciliar assembly the demands of his branch of the church. The recent January edict proved the strength of the Huguenot in France, and though the cardinal's first speech at Trent breathed nothing but condemnation of these heretics, it suited him to pose as the advocate of as extensive a series of reforms as had yet been urged upon the council. Further additions were made to the libel already mentioned, which was shortly afterwards, January 1563, presented by the French ambassador, and perfect harmony existed between the French and the imperial policy at the council. What decision, then, was to be expected on the crucial question as to the relations between papal and episcopal authority? How could a recognition of the Pope's claim to be regarded as rector universalis ecclesiae be expected from such a union of the ultramontane forces? The current was not likely to be stopped by the provisions for checking some of the abuses of the papal court, which about this time Pius IV announced on his own account at Rome. It seemed on the point of rising higher than ever, when February 1563, the Cardinal of Lorraine and some other prelates waited upon the Emperor at Innsbruck. In truth, however, a turning point in the history of the Council was close at hand. End of Section 11